Hi, I'm Eric Bradley and I come from the uh, six o'clock service mainly. And uh, as we start our series in Isaiah, I hope you're as excited as I am to uh, see where this leads us. So I'll be reading from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 to 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. G'day, my name's Rod, I'm one of the pastors here at WBC and as we kick off uh, this new Term 3 series in Isaiah 40 to 66, uh, I'm going to pray and ask that God really help us as we get into what is a majestic uh, but also a complex book. So pray with me as we commit this time to studying God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we can look at how you have revealed yourself in the past and that in doing so we can learn how you are at work in us and your people today. Uh, we pray that as we uh, look at Isaiah 40 this morning that you might help us as we think through your word that we might respond in repentance and faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, nearly six million Jews died in the Holocaust, the attempted extermination or genocide of the Jewish people by Adolf Hitler and his Nazi party in World War II. It caused great despair for many Jews, both during and after the war. And near the end of World War II, members of the Allied forces were often found 
searching farms and houses for snipers. And at one abandoned house, which had been reduced almost to rubble, searchers found their way down into the basement. And there on a crumbling wall, a victim of the Holocaust had scratched a star of David. And beneath it was written the words, I believe in the sun, even when it does not shine. I believe in love, even when it is not shown. I believe in God, even when he does not speak. In the Bible's ancient history of the Jews, the greatest disaster to overtake the nation of Israel was undeniably the exile to Babylon. It was far worse than even the destruction of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians over a century earlier. You see, in 605 BC, the newly ascended Babylonian Empire was mopping up the remains of the Assyrian Empire when it defeated Egypt as well and took control of the kingdom of Judah the remaining southern half of the people of God. God had brought this judgment on them because of their sin, primarily their idolatry. And in this first attack, some of the nobility were taken back to Babylon, including the prophet Daniel and his friends. But they allowed the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, to continue reigning as a puppet leader as long as he paid heavy taxes to them. And this he did for about eight years until 597 B.C., when he decided to rebel. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was not impressed and he sent his army in. And the following battle saw King Jehoiakim dead and 10,000 men, not to mention women and children, taken back to Babylon. He had gutted the nation of its leadership, but he hadn't destroyed the city. Zedekiah was made the puppet king. But after about nine years, he too rebelled, and this time Nebuchadnezzar was not so restrained. He besieged Jerusalem for 18 months until famine had completely taken over, at which point the city fell and was totally razed by the Babylonians. The unthinkable happened. The temple was destroyed. The palace too, and Jerusalem had fallen. And those who had not died for the from the famine or by the sword in the city's collapse, were taken as captives back to Babylon. The year was 587 BC, and this was the lowest point in the history of God's people. And they would remain in Babylon for about another 50 years, on top of the nearly 20 years the first exiles had already endured to that point. And as they suffered in Babylon, it seemed that God had abandoned them. It seemed that there was no future for the remnant of the southern kingdom. Well, this is the background, the setting for the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, which we're going to consider over the next 10 weeks. At this all-time low, Isaiah's words from chapter 40 were a healing balm because he suddenly announced that the 70 years of exile in Babylon were almost over, that there was a future. And so as we focus on the first part of chapter 40 today, the question that we're going to consider is this. How does God comfort his people? What does he say to encourage them at this lowest point? How does God comfort his people? Well, I have four answers to that question today. And the first answer is this. He doesn't disown them, but rather forgives them. He doesn't disown them, but forgives them. Notice again what is stated in verses 1 and 2. We read, 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The opening repetition, comfort, comfort, are plural imperatives. It's a command to bring God's people comfort. The speaker is God, but he's going to do this through his prophet, and he expresses a longing to enter into and address their feelings of pain. That God even still calls people from Jerusalem, my people, is a great comfort after all their rebellious idolatry that led them into exile. You see, they had really abandoned him, but God had not rejected them. His people were like little children who had stumbled on a rocky path and fallen to the ground bruised. But God would pick them up and comfort them and speak tenderly to them or literally speak to their hearts. And to speak to the heart here means to address the core of a person, to address their will. But does raise the question, how can the justice of God be met after offering a catalogue of their sins in the first half of the book? I mean, how can he suddenly pardoned all that went before well we're told in verse 2 that he forgives them that's how their sin has been paid for it's just that we're not told how the inference in the text seems to be that their suffering in exile is the payment but we discover as this second part of isaiah unfolds that it is through a promised servant that our sins can be dealt with The Bible is very clear that a person cannot pay for their own sins, either by facing hardship or through any efforts they might make. Only the promised Messiah could be the once-for-all sacrifice that atoned for sin. Which brings me to a second answer to our question of how God comforts his people at this low point. Secondly, he announces their rescue. He announces their rescue. Notice again what is recorded in verses 3 to 5. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, here's the first of three voices. It's heard in verse 3 as God calls for comfort and to speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And it's acted on. And this first voice announces that God is coming and will reveal his glory to the world by rescuing his people. That will be glorious, amazing, stunning, given all that's taken place. And this pictures the Lord leading his people out of exile and smoothing of the way is meant to emphasize the importance of their king, God but also the certainty of his arrival to save them and to take them home. God himself will bring home the exiles, smoothing their way. And so here is concrete proof that they have been forgiven. You see, God's big plan throughout the Old Testament can be summarized as God's people in God's land under God's rule. God's people in God's land under God's rule. And yet they were no longer in the promised land, but rather longing to return home from Babylon. For 500 years, they had lived in the promised land unchallenged. 
But then the Babylonians had come, and now almost 70 years in captivity had taken place. And so this voice, this announcement is monumental. The end of exile was coming. A return to the promised land awaited. Now, as we apply this section to ourselves, I'm sure many of you will have noticed that this is a passage that is taken up in the New Testament, where it is said to be fulfilled by John the Baptist, who points us to our rescuer, Jesus. See, in John's Gospel, in chapter 1, verse 23, the religious leaders were seeking to work out John the Baptist's identity and struggling with it. And they eventually asked him, and he replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. You see, it is ultimately fulfilled in the return of God's wayward people to himself. In John the Baptist, in his role to not only prepare the way for the coming of Christ, but to announce his coming. And so John prepares the way for Jesus by calling people to repentance and baptism as a sign of that repentance. But he's also the one who will personally reveal the anointed one, the king. Back in June of 1970, uh, my parents-in-law won an invitation to a garden party in Buckingham Palace. After a, a tour of the palace, uh, the several hundred guests were arranged on the back lawn in horseshoe shapes, groups of 30 or 40, for the highlight of the day. They were being prepared in order to meet the Queen and the royal family. You see, the guests had to be arranged to be made ready for meeting with royalty. And then, when all was in readiness, officials in uniform announced the entrance of the royal party and they proceeded out of the palace down the steps to meet each group in turn. You see, the arrival of royalty is both something that requires preparation and something that must be announced beforehand by a servant. And John the Baptist had that role of pointing us to Jesus, the coming of the Lord to Jerusalem. Which brings us to a third answer to our question of how God comforts his people. And that is, he assures them of his faithfulness. He assures them of his faithfulness. So notice what God affirms in verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God endures forever. Now, as this second voice cries out, there is a strong contrast here between God's sure promises and his faithful character and the fickleness of people. You know, God's word will endure forever, so he will keep and perform his promises. However, flawed people are like the grass and the flowers that are here today, gone tomorrow, in terms of their faithfulness. What we're being told is that we're morally and spiritually unreliable. But God knows all about our weakness, indeed the frailty of all of his creation. I mean, it's his own breath that causes grass to wither and flowers to fall in this image. And yet the very breath of God can also carry God's word to humanity, a word that will eternally stand. And so the question of whether God's people will truly entrust themselves to God is one that we will keep returning to in the weeks to come. 
And that brings us to a fourth and final point of comfort. He declares his power and gentleness. Fourthly, God declares his power and gentleness. Recall again what is stated in verses 9 to 11. We read in the text, You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. The exile was not the last word, and the homecoming is certain, as we've already seen. And so now it's to be shouted from the mountaintop so that all will hear. There is nothing hesitant or uncertain about God's coming to rescue his people. But notice the nature of God's arrival. God's arrival is in power, in great strength. This is a picture in verse 10 of a victorious soldier or king arriving home with his rewards, the spoils of his victory, having overcome the enemy. But notice too that although he is mighty, he is also gentle. And this is the stark contrast that is made between verses 10 and 11. While on the one hand, God is sovereign, powerful, the ruler with a mighty arm, he's also the loving and gentle shepherd who cares for his sheep in verse 11. And so he's pictured as carefully tending his flock, making provision for the weak lambs, gathering them up in his arms, and also catering for those who have young. Note the contrast between the ruling arm of God in verse 10 and the gathering arms of verse 11. He has both the power to protect and the gentleness to carry his people close to his heart. Well, as we apply this final section to ourselves, we need to grasp how both these characteristics of God are portrayed perfectly in his son, the Lord Jesus. You see, in Christ, we have someone who is both powerful in word and deed, who can calm the storm and raise the dead, but who is also a humble and gentle leader who protects his flock. Now, we have received the comfort of forgiveness of sins if we are believers. We have been the recipients of a visit from God in the person of Jesus and in the receiving of the Holy Spirit, so that our years of being estranged from God are over. But even more than this, Jesus will not abandon us once we are his. And this is why he can be described as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. In verses 27 and 28 of John 10, Jesus stated, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus will never let go of those who are his sheep, Christians who have placed their faith in his death and resurrection, which pays for our sin and brings us into a personal relationship with God. And this is true even in the hardest moments where he may seem far away. In January of 1999, uh, Baptist missionary Graham Staines, along with his two sons, 
Philip 10 and Timothy 6, were killed by militant Hindus in Orissa, India. Graham Staines had worked with lepers in India for more than 30 years, and he was sleeping in his car with his sons because they had friends over that had taken their beds in their home when a mob armed with axes set the vehicle on fire and prevented the victims from escaping. 17 people eventually faced court accused of murder in 2003. Now, you would understand, I'm sure, if Graham's wife Gladys and her daughter Esther, who were not killed in this tragic event, thought that God had abandoned them. I mean, here they were in a persecuted minority in a foreign country, and God had allowed this horrific event to occur. And at such moments, it appears that God is just a long way away, that somehow we have forgotten that he cannot be present. But you know, Gladys Staines refused to leave India in the aftermath, remaining there with her daughter in Orissa, where she took over her husband's work with lepers and arranged the building of a hospital there in memory of Graham, Philip and Timothy. Asked why, uh, some years later, uh, in an interview with the ABC, Gladys stated this, The more I thought about it, I realised Graham and the children's loss was not just Esther and my loss, it was a loss to the whole leprosy community. The whole church area around here, those involved in the churches, in the villages, as God is at work. You see, God was still there. He was at work through the Christian serving. And she wanted to continue helping in that knowledge. They weren't abandoned. God was not barred from India. He was with them. You know, there are times when we too can have a sense of abandonment, whether through geographical distance or through a spiritual or emotional low point. The experience of feeling exiled from the presence of God can be dark and terrible. And it need not be because of persecution like the Staines family. It need not be because of our rebellious sin as it had been for Israel. It may simply be because we live in a fallen world where we feel that God is not present at times in our struggle, or at least not at work in our life in a way that we can observe his power or love for us. Now, if you've ever felt like that or feel like that today, I want to assure you that God is always with us. Jesus promises his followers in Matthew 28, verse 20, And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is ultimately fulfilled in an indwelling of the Holy Spirit within each believer. Jesus said in John 16, verse 7, Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Don't ever doubt God's presence and his power and his love for you. If you are his child through faith in Jesus, his spirit indwells you and you will never be abandoned. He is always present, always ready to comfort his people. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God of all comfort, who can comfort us in all our troubles. Indeed, the greatest comfort is to know forgiveness of sins, but also to have, on top of that, your ongoing presence with your Spirit indwelling us, 
your help, your power and love shown towards us day by day as you watch over our lives and continue to stand with us is such a wonderful truth. And Lord, we pray that you might help us to reflect on these great promises, these great truths if we're a believer this morning. And for anyone who has not yet placed their trust in Jesus, Lord, ask that you might be at work in them to see the wonderful love and gentleness, but also your power that you demonstrate. Demonstrate ultimately in the giving of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.